0: Don't need a green card beef. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 429 with guest Michael Ford, recorded live Monday, March 9th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Online at www.code magazine.com. And now, the man who decided to hang out today with his favorite Irish friend patio furniture, Carl Franklin.
1: Thank you very much, and welcome back to DotNet Rocks. This is Carl Franklin here on the East Coast of the United States, New London, Connecticut. Richard Campbell is out in Vancouver. He'll be with us in just a minute. Hey, it's St. Patrick's Day here in the United States, and that's a day when everybody puts on green clothes and drinks green beer and gets completely hooped. It's, uh, if for those of you who don't know, that's what that's all about. And I don't even know if there was a St. Patrick or or if he was a patron saint of drinking or what that's all about. Maybe I should research that story a little bit before I tell you next time. But anyway, uh, very short intro today. I just wanted to wish you all a happy St. Patrick's day. We're not going to do the other stuff. We'll just get right to the interview. Well, okay. Let's introduce our guest. Michael Ford works full time with Iron Python for Resolver Systems creating a highly programmable spreadsheet called Resolver 1. He has been using Iron Python since about version 0.7. Michael Ford has been developing with Python since 2002. He blogs and writes about Python and Iron Python, far more than is healthy for one individual. His words, not mine. And in 2008 was made the first Microsoft MVP for Dynamic Languages. As the Resolver Systems Community Champion... He speaks internationally on Python and Iron Python. He's the author of the book Iron Python in Action from Manning Publications and can also be found online at www.voidspace.org.uk slash python slash weblog. In the real world, he lives in Northampton, UK with his wife Delia. Welcome, Michael.
2: Hi. Hello there, Carl Richard.
1: We haven't uh, we
3: haven't spoken about Python since maybe John Lamb, Richard. Yeah, but well, yeah, well, John Lamb's more of a Ruby guy, but he's certainly a dynamic languages guy. I've been chasing Jim Huguenin for some time, trying to get him involved in the show as well, because I think the fact that we have these other languages coming into to studio is pretty exciting. And Michael and I met it was uh, it was in Basta, at darmstad, as I recall correctly.
0: Hey, Michael. Right, yeah.
3: And I'm like, holy cow, a real live Iron Python guy.
1: Yeah. I would like you to know that at the PDC, Harry Pearson gave me an Iron Python sticker, which I promptly have displayed on the top of my laptop under my I'm a PC sticker. And I don't even <laughs> use Iron Python.
3: So that's the kind of support you get, you know. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> So maybe we need to start at the beginning here with just Python in general, because I know Iron Python is you know, a particular incarnation, but so what is the deal with Python? Why is people so stoked about this language?
2: There's a few reasons, and um, one of the particular ones, and one the reason it's my favorite programming language, and it's just a very flexible and expressive programming language, so the object-oriented model is very clean, and because it's a dynamically typed language, it, you can typically get away with doing things with a lot less code, and even remove sort of whole layers of architecture that, that you might have in uh, the more traditional statically typed languages.
1: Was Python one of the first dynamic languages?
2: It, it was. Uh, what actually happened was Jim Huginian came to write an article on why the .NET framework was such a bad platform for dynamic languages. This was in about 2003, I think, when .NET had a reputation as being a, being a very bad platform for that kind of thing. And that was and before
1: generics was, and things, right?
2: Yeah, but that was still in the days of um, .NET 1.1, I think. Right. And so he came to write this article but and did a sort of toy implementation of Python as a way of finding out why net was so bad and actually found out that it's a great platform for dynamic languages and then having started this implementation, he sort of felt on a bound to turn it into a full implementation and then Microsoft hired him and from IronPython one they created the dynamic language runtime and now we can see other dynamic languages like Iron Ruby. There's a community language called Iron Scheme that's also being developed. It'll mm. run on, on the .NET framework.
1: How similar are Python and Ruby? Because uh, Ruby's gotten a lot more press, I think, on .NET Rocks anyway, than, uh, yeah, than uh, Python Yeah, Ruby's been is.
2: very popular, particularly in the last couple of years. It's kind of exploded onto the scene through mainly through Rails, which is a, a great framework for writing web applications. There's kind of a lot of rivalry, mainly frame, friendly, but not always entirely friendly between Python and Ruby. And I think one of the main reasons there's this ri- rivalry is because actually they're very similar languages, similar in terms of capabilities and the, the sort of things you'd use them for. There are there are quite a few little differences, and, and it turns out that those little differences really seem to matter to developers who prefer one or the other.
1: Yeah. So so Ruby, um, Ruby grew out of Python then? Is that what you're saying? No,
2: no. They, they were actually... Both languages are quite old. Both languages go back to, their, both languages predate C-sharp, in fact, and go back to about the same time as Java. But Ruby was very much less popular than Python for years and years. It was only sort of three years ago or so, two or three years ago, that Ruby kind of exploded in popularity. So they, they evolved at about the same time.
1: Okay. And, and you, as you say, the, the languages have similarities, but, uh, but how are they different?
2: But there are a few key differences. But there's one big difference at the core of the object model in that Ruby inherits very much from small talk in the, the, the concept of message passing and that everything, uh, all the communication between objects when you call methods and so on, it's all, it, it's all based around the, method par- uh, the message passing paradigm, whereas Python is much more similar, really, to C Sharp and Java and languages like C++ in that you, you have methods on objects Okay, so that's that's kind of the core difference. And then there are lots of other little differences, like in in Ruby you can modify the built-in types, um, which is something you can't do in Python. Um, Python has first-class functions. Ruby has blocks. They they do very similar things.
1: Now, I'm I just uh, while you were saying that, I went to the Iron Python project at Codeplex and downloaded some of the samples in oh, right. yep. in in two O. And I'm looking at the IronPython.modules and IronPython.console directories, and I see C-sharp files.
2: IronPython is implemented in C-sharp, IronPython and the the dynamic language runtime.
1: Okay. So that explains it. So it's not uh, another language as in the classical sense where you plug in a language to Visual Studio, but it runs...
2: You can can, can plug in the language to Visual Studio. Oh, you can? Yeah, for Visual Studio 2005, there's an SDK, and for Visual Studio 2008, you've got Iron Python Studio, which gives you some IntelliSense and um, things like syntax highlighting, and that can either run in Visual Studio or uh, as a, a separate standalone application. You tend to find the dynamic languages community will gravi- gravitate towards much more lightweight editors rather than a, a big monolithic editor like Visual Studio, but for the, for the .NET community. They typically want to use Visual Studio.
1: So you're saying we have both options. We have an implementation that is a language that plugs into Visual Studio. When you you know pick a project, it's a Iron Python language, and we also have an implementation over C sharp. Is that what you're saying?
2: They're both. They're, they're both. That is the one implementation, but you can use them in different. You can use it in different ways, and and in fact, you can use it for lots of different things. I mean, one of the. One of the important things you can do with IronPython is you can take it and you can embed it into your, your C-sharp project in your .NET application, and then you can add user scripting or uh, an extensible architecture so you can uh, allow the application to be extended in, in IronPython. So then you ju- you just use the, the IronPython bits and pieces with, within your normal C-sharp BB.NET um, application. Uh,
1: how exactly does that work? I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around that.
2: Well, this was one of the things that the, the IronPython team did right from the start. So it's, a, it's been designed to be used this way. And the core parts of, of IronPython, or really the dynamic language runtime, are that you, the languages are provided by a class called the script engine. And so what, what you do is you, you have your application. Say so you want to allow plugins. Um, so you, you discover your plugins from, uh, from Python files um, on disk as text, or whether they come from a text box. And you take those, and you create your Python engine, and, and then you you run the the, the um, you run the Python code, and then you can use the objects that have been created. So they're really just the whole language is implemented as a as an engine, which is one class, and you get all these other classes for for interoperating between the languages.
1: Interesting. Is this how the dynamic language runtime works in general, with not just
2: Python but other dynamic languages? Yeah, that's right. And in fact. You, Using Iron Python and using Iron Ruby, the code you write um, to add those to a .NET application is almost identical. There's very little difference, and and you can write applications that use both. They all use the the DLR, the Dynamic Language Runtime core classes. So whether you, uh, as a as a .NET program, you're using C# and VB.NET, .NET, allowing your application to be extended, it really doesn't matter to you whether you allow it to be done in in Python or Ruby or Scheme or any of the other languages.
3: And in the end this all becomes IL anyway, right?
2: Yeah, that's that, that's right. I mean that's one of the things about the the DLR. It does it, it compiles Python, it compiles Ruby to in memory IL. So what's getting executed is is IL bytecode, just as in the same way as if you're running C sharp or vb.net.
3: Okay, and, and, but I guess the big change here is we're, we're dealing with these dynamic types, so I'm just wondering what kind of hoops IL is jumping through to deal with dynamic types.
2: The .NET framework actually has some pretty good support for that um, through .NET APIs and um, dynamic method and things like that. So it, it is generating the code on the fly. That's down to the way the dynamic language runtime works. What it does is it executes your program, and when it comes across an operation rather than in C Sharp, which just, and it's the bytecode to say, do this. What happens is the dynamic language runtime asks the language and says, how do I do this? And then once it's asked once for any particular operation, it, it can cache it. So you've got polymorphic inline caches, which um, help with the performance. But it's the language implementation provides the rules for the for the operations in your program.
3: Right. And, it, and that was my next thought was, boy, this is a lot of on-the-fly computation and, like you said, reflection and so forth. It's got to struggle a little with performance.
2: Well, dynamic languages, typically, they're not as fast as, um, as a statically typed language. That's one of the reasons people use statically-type languages. But that's much less of a factor than, than you would expect. And when the company I work for, I work, I work for Resolver Systems, as you said. And um, when we started using Iron Python, actually, it was just shortly before I joined, at the, at the time, do, writing the application in Iron Python was a bit of an experiment, a prototype. Dynamic languages are a lot easier to test that really suited the, the test-driven development approach that the two developers were taking at the time. But they assumed that for performance reasons they were going to have to rewrite in C-sharp at some point. And then um, three and a bit years later, we've got 40-odd thousand lines of iron Python code. We've got about 140,000 lines in our test code. We've got a, a sum total of about 300 lines of C-sharp. And every time we've come to look at performance, every time we've come and said, look, here's an operation that's, that's not working fast enough, we've been able to get the speed we need by improving our algorithms, by improving our Python code, and not having to drop into C- C-sharp. And the reason programs run slow is, is usually not the fault of the language. It's the fault of the program, the developer.
3: Right. Hmm. right. And, and, and I was also thinking we've got tons of horsepower these days. I mean, back in the, in the 80s and 90s, when these different languages were trying to stratify themselves out and sort of win dominance, it was all about performance. And I just don't think that's true today.
2: Right, right. And that was one of the things with Python is you would extend it in, in C. If you had stuff that really had to run quickly, you'd write some C and interface that to, to the, the standard implementation of Python. is called CPython. One of the nice things about Iron Python is if you do want to extend it, then integrating stuff with C Sharp is trivially easy, really simple. And, of course, C Sharp is a much nicer language to write in than C. This is, what, this is one area that, that Iron Python really wins out over the, the traditional implementation of Python.
3: You also said 40,000 lines of Iron Python for your whole uh, spreadsheet app. That, to me, sounds very little. That's not a lot of lines of code.
2: Yeah, right. I mean, it's, it's perhaps a medium-sized application. But, we're, yeah, we're amazingly proud of how much we can do in, in 40,000 lines of code. And we genuinely think that it, had we started writing this in C-Sharp, it would probably have been about twice as many lines of code or so. And uh, the guys who started the application... Um, they were Java and uh, C++ programmers at the time. Um, they weren't Python programmers. So, I mean, they're just astonished by uh, how much we've been able to get done. We do pride ourselves on on uh, how little code we have. There, A day when you throw code away is a great day.
3: <laughs> and I also caught the fact that there was three times as many lines of code for testing as there was for production code.
2: That's right. That's, that's fairly typical for test-driven development, where, where you write tests before you do anything. And we have full... End-to-end functional tests that test the user interface, so it's not just unit testing.
3: And then finally, that you had 300 lines of C Sharp was that optimization code that you wrote?
2: It's it's not. It's we, we
3: have a custom executable
2: um, that sort of launches the application, and we do um, our second instance remoting in C Sharp just so that we can do that really quickly before we sort of spun up the uh, the Iron Python engine and started loading our Python code. So I suppose you could say that's a bit of a, a performance optimization. Okay. Uh, and there's one or two things that, that IronPython um, can't do that you can do in C Sharp. So there's a couple of places we have to do things in C Sharp.
1: What is C H uh, Iron? This is um, I'm looking at this in the in the samples here. There's a project called C H Iron.
2: C H O Chiron. Chiron. That's a very interesting project. Um, one of the great things about um, Iron Python and Iron Ruby is that they run on Silverlight. So you can actually write Silverlight web applications that run in the browser. And you can do that in Iron Python and Iron Ruby. And um, Chiron is a tool for dynamically serving those applications. So normally you package your Silverlight application as a zap file, xap, and, um, and that's fetched by the web page or served by the, by the server. And, and that's your application. What you can do is you can um, have your application just as uh, text files on the, on the file system, Chiron running as a local server, and then you can just edit your files, refresh the browser, and Chiron dynamically packages up the, the ZAP file for you every time. So it's a great way of interactively and dynamically building, building applications wow, without cool. having to recompile every time.
3: That sounds like more fun than normal Silverlight development, actually. Yeah, I was going to say, there's uh,
1: there's some, some nice stuff in here for Silverlight.
3: And that, that's
2: one of the, the the really nice things about dynamic languages, is you don't have this whole... Um, edit, compile, run cycle because there's there's no... Well, You can pre-compile stuff but also um, it'll run the the Python files it'll run the Ruby files straight off the disk so you can make changes and immediately see the results of those changes without having to go through a big um, build process and particularly when you're doing test-driven development and you're writing a test running it, making a change, running the test. um, That sort of quick, rapid feedback is, is very important to the development process.
3: I know we're making test driven development work with all these different languages but it it seems like in this scenario this is the least friction for that kind of development. I agree. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I'm I'm just trying to pick up what you you know you're putting down here that that we here we have the the challenge of test driven development the thing that people complain about is it just takes so long to get anything done. But I, I guess in the, in the compile and test cycle that we're used to with other languages, uh, you have that obstacle, and here is a language that just lends itself to that better. It's not that you can't do TDD in other languages. It, this is better at it.
2: Yeah, and, and, and it's not just this rapid feedback, but also when you're working in a statically typed language, you, you, you've got the compiler to fight with. When you've got a method that's declared as taking a, a certain type of object, uh, if you try to pass anything else in, if you try to create a mock object that sort of mimics the behavior for testing, then the compiler is going to fight against you. So where dynamic languages are, use duck typing, which is one of these great phrases, if it, if it right. walks like a duck, if it behaves like a duck, quacks like a duck, then I'll treat it like a duck. So if you, if you want to pass in a mock object, then you just do it, and the, the, the dynamic language lets, lets you do it.
3: Yeah, you don't really need mocking frameworks when you're playing in Python.
2: No, that's right, and and things like inversion of control and and all of these things where they can improve your code quality because they can allow you to do sort of separation of concerns. But a lot of time, you're using these, you're using these frameworks to make your code testable, right? Um, and and that's really solving a problem that you just don't have in dynamic languages. Huh. And and you find the same thing with, with, with whole layers of your architecture sometimes if you if you want to provide a, a pluggable data sources, and you need to be using different implementations. And you've, you've got to have a layer of your architecture that allows you to use these different types. And um, in dynamic languages, you, you, you can just do it. And, and sometimes a similar architecture comes out naturally. But often you'll find that the, because the language is more flexible, that, that you, you just get away with less code.
1: So I I understand now, I just had this flash of understanding that I had my previous confusion about... You know, C sharp versus it's not implemented like a language and whatnot. I was looking at the source of Iron Python, not the samples and the source. Uh, uh,
2: right, I did wonder. You're seeing all these C sharp. Yeah, files. I'm seeing all
1: these C sharp files, and I'm like, okay, so Iron Python was developed in C sharp for use in the DLR in on on top of the CLR in Visual Studio as another language.
2: That's right. You got yeah. it.
1: That's straight up. I, and that was what. Uh, Seriously, I'm sitting here scratching my head. Go, all I see is a bunch of C sharp code, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm wondering why there are like types and math, you know, math routines and things like this. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm stupid sometimes.
3: But if you look at the wrong thing, you're going to get yourself confused. There's no two ways yeah, about it.
1: Yeah, it's like trying to
3: interpret binary data without any protocol. You know. But I, 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 Okay, so getting back to the topic, I'm really excited about this idea that I now get what you were talking about, uh, Michael, on I can actually strip a whole layer of abstraction away because I don't need to build, say, this data access abstraction layer where I could switch out different databases. I would get that essentially for free in Python. Yeah, you're right. Well, and and you're right, right. it's got to be a duck, right? That's right, it's got to be a duck. If it's expecting a duck, you can't pass in a dog. Yeah,
2: and and that's what and that's why one of the reasons that testing is important. But I mean, people write people write large C sharp applications without testing. I think they're crazy. People write large Python applications without without testing, and and I think they're crazy as well. But, well, um,
3: it, it strikes me that this language really needs testing because it doesn't have any of those sort of built in protections of static typing. You, you're not well, but, telling the compiler but, but, your intent up front. You're saying well, just go with this. We'll just see what happens.
2: That is right. But really, if you think about what does the compiler give you, if you have, say you have a method which takes two numbers and adds them together um, and returns a a result, all that the compiler is going to check is that it takes integers and returns an integer. It's not going to tell you anything about whether the code that's inside that method is correct or not. Right. So just because you've got um, compile time safety, that doesn't mean your program's right. So really what the compiler does is give you a very thin layer of the safety net. And if you think that that's enough um, and that your program hasn't got any bugs because it compiles, then um, you're just plain wrong. You know, there's no <laughs> program that's bug three. And as soon as you're going to do testing anyway, then a minimal exercise of the code is, is, is going to check the type sa- safety. A minimal exercising of the code is going to say that, well, I pass integers in and I get an integer out. But you're going to check the logic as well, and that's, that's the important bit.
1: This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik. And when it comes to testing web applications, usually you have two options. Do it manually, which is hard and takes forever, or use automated testing software, which is quite expensive and rarely does a good job with modern Ajax applications. And all of this is destined to change with Telerik's new automated testing solution, Web UI Test Studio, which promises to bring a new era of automated testing to the masses. The product is offered in partnership with Art of Test, the experts in quality assurance technologies. Telerik Web Test Studio is specialized for testing ASP.NET applications, especially ones with rich Ajax and client side functionality. What's more, it's fully integrated in both Visual Studio Team Suite and Professional Edition, making it easy for developers and QA to collaborate. To top it off, the studio ships with special wrappers for the Telerik AJAX controls, which expose control-specific test actions. Web UI Test Studio is ready for the future, with Silverlight testing features coming soon. Check it out at TELERIK.com and don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. All right, so while you guys are talking theory and academia, I'm actually downloading the samples and seeing what's in there so we can talk about it.
2: If you, if you want to see an example of a great application written on Python, of course, there's, a, there's Resolver 1.
1: Well, one thing that really caught my eye in the samples, and we'll talk about Resolver 1 in just a second some more, is FM synth. Somebody implemented <laughs> an FM synthesizer using digital audio direct sound buffers in Python. And I looked at the source code here just in the last few minutes and it's like easy to read, really easy to read. You wouldn't expect that in an FM synthesizer that the source code would be easy to read.
2: One, one of the things that when I came to IronPython was I've been developing in Python for a few years now and this was kind of my first uh, introduction to the .NET framework three years ago and I was a bit kind of um, I was a bit nervous about entering this Microsoft ecosystem? and What was I going to find? And, and actually, I've been amazed by the quality of the .NET framework. And a lot of the, the classes in there are very straightforward and very easy to use. And so they're, they're just very natural to use from Python. So that the code you see in Python using the .NET framework, using the .NET classes, is, is very easy to read. And that's a testimony to, to both Python and, and to the, the framework it's running on here. Yeah, okay. So let's talk about Resolver. I've been with Resolver now for nearly three years. I think it was actually May in um, 2006 I joined.
1: Well, uh, we have talked about it a little bit, but let's just start at the beginning of about it and what what got you into this uh, and, and what it's all about and, and where it is right now.
2: Well, the guys who started Resolver were uh, they were all from the, the financial services world and. Um, they basically saw the problems that came about because most of the businesses in the country or the businesses they were involved with were run on excel spreadsheets and um and what starts as a simple little prototype or simple little model um, then becomes a full blown business application
0: sure and
2: the the, tru- the trouble is if you then take this spreadsheet and say well look this took t- t- took me 2 weeks to develop 3 weeks to develop um, and we were sort of modeling one of our core business processes here but now everyone in the company is copying it and no one's got the latest version. So we need to turn it into an application that people can use. And you, you take that to the IT department and they'll say, sure, no problem. That's going to take us six months or a, 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 even a year. Just writing applications is hard. It, so what they came up with was the idea for um, an application development platform that would use the the spreadsheet um, metaphor, if you like, the spreadsheet user interface. It would have a familiar interface to people who were used to spreadsheets, but you could use it for creating uh, applications that sort of sit in the middle, a, a bit like a Dreamweaver for spreadsheets, if you like.
1: Wow, Dreamweaver for spreadsheets—that's that's pretty slick.
2: And, and one of one of the ways it does that is that everything that you enter into the spreadsheets, the data, the formulae—they're all, all turned into code in an interpreted language. That was the that was the core idea, and then mixing your own code into the flow of the spreadsheet or using um, the .NET framework classes and, and, and libraries and um, integrating with the rest of your IT system is then a lot easier because your spreadsheet is code. And that, that was the core idea. And that was why when they sat down to write it, they started to look at IronPython and, and, and the other um, interpreted language, language engines that were around at the time. <laughs> and at the time, there weren't very many for .NET, and IronPython itself was, was only version 0.7. And they started playing with IronPython and they just thought, you know, this has got great integration with the .NET framework. It's a really nice language and, and it's just a dream to test it. And and that's how uh, that's how Resolver came to be written in IronPython.
1: And what version are you on right now?
2: We've just released version one point four, which um, upgrades to IronPython two. And we've also for the Python community, one of I'm backtracking a little bit <laughs> for the Python community, one of the drawbacks of IronPython is that I, I mentioned earlier Python's written in C. Um, and so a lot of the, the libraries are written in C. So if you use Iron Python, you've got access to the whole of the .NET framework, but you lose some of the um, the, the the C libraries, which are kind of a, a core part of Python, really, or the Python experience. And so people were taking their code and it, they were trying to run it on Iron Python, and some of it wouldn't run because of these missing C extensions. And the Iron Python team have, have done a good job of providing some of those, but there's you know there's loads of them. And in fact, one of those was, was written originally by a guy called Jim Hugunin, who's the same guy who then went on to write Iron Python, and it's called NumPy. And it's a, it's a huge library for working with very large arrays of numerical data for doing very fast processing of um, grids of numbers, the sort of thing you might want to do in a spreadsheet. So we have all of these um, people who've come to us and they said, look, we're using Excel, we're using NumPy. For doing processing of data. We're using Python, and we, we want to bring all this together, and Resolver 1 looks like a really good way of doing it. And kind of, well, great in theory, but I'm afraid you can't use NumPy with Resolver 1. So what we've done is we've written this compatibility layer that allows you to use Python C extensions with Iron Python. We've, we've actually ended up writing most of the Python C API in C Sharp. It's a bit of a crazy project. And our latest <laughs> version has got that, that integrated into it.
3: There's some language recursion here that I think is going to make people a little crazy.
2: (laughs) Well, that's right. The Python C API, what these C extensions do when you load them up is they say, right, uh, I'm going to create this Python class, which is a NumPy array. I'm going to create this Python module, these Python functions. So when you load them up, they kind of register everything they've got. And what we've done is re-implemented the, the Python C API. And when these extensions do that, instead of creating a Python function or a Python class, they're creating an Iron Python function, an Iron Python class, and see right. all this um, calling backwards and forwards going. But the amazing thing is the performance is great. You can work with sort of huge arrays, millions of um, numbers, and, and, and the, the performance is very good, much better than we, we expected. And that's now that's, we've got the first level of integrating that inside Resolve One now.
3: I'm just trying to imagine what it is about this particular language combination that lends itself to massive number arrays so well.
2: I think one of the the things why Python is liked by the sort of people who crunch numbers is the kind of the interactive experience. So we talked a little bit about these edit your code and and run it again, but you've also got the interactive interpreter with with Python and I in Python. So you fire up the interactive interpreter and you get a little console and you can execute code directly in the console. Right. So you could pull up, you could have all your numbers in a CSV. You could slurp that up into a text file and then dump it into an array, transform the, the, the arrays of numbers using NumPy, um, dump it back out as a, as a text file, or even just introspect it and look at the data, run them, sort of filters on it. and So you can do a lot of stuff very interactively to experiment with it, and I think the, sort of, the number crunching guys
3: like that. Well, they tend to think like that, right? It's a very iterative way of working of, do this. Okay, that's the number I'm expecting. Now do this. And now do this.
2: Yeah, and, and .NET has PowerShell, which is a, is a great scripting environment. But as a programming language exploration environment, it's, um, it's lacking a bit. And, and with the Iron Python interpreter, one of the demos I typically show is just uh, getting a Windows Forms user interface up and running from, from the command line. And uh, and you can explore live classes, you can introspect, you can look at them, see what all the members are, and this kind of thing. So you you, you can play with live objects at the interactive interpreter, and that's a great, it's a, just a great tool for, 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 for learning and experimenting.
3: This almost reminds me of the way BASIC used to be. I mean, pre-visual right, BASIC, right. that very uh, interactive approach to writing code.
2: Right, I, I remember those days from the, the BBC. Yeah. Ten go to uh, print such and such twenty go to ten and oh, yeah. typing them in one at a time.
1: Well, you know, i i got into uh, I got into basic programming very early, but uh, as soon as I discovered Quick Basic and the lack of go tos, that was that was <laughs> that was good living right there.
2: <laughs> yeah, my my next machine was an Amiga, and I, I did a bit of assembly language programming on the Amiga. That was a beautiful machine. In the operating
1: system. it really was a beautiful machine. I had a friend who had one, and I was very impressed.
2: The good old days of computing. Yeah.
1: lest we run the risk of sounding dated.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Maybe
3: just a little bit. <laughs> Rock your mind, eh? <laughs> well, it's just, just re- remembering that interactive coding like that, where variables are just held in memory and we were working a command line, that's an old thing. We did that for a long time. Heck, earlier versions of Studio had that run immediate window.
2: And it's coming back as well. I think perhaps prompted by um, the rise of the dynamic languages and this interactive experience, that the, there have been demos of. I think Anders showing off um, a C sharp interactive interpreter. So it's coming back.
3: Yeah, we're we're starting to remember the value of this. Which is, you know, what's old is new.
2: Yeah, and and we've got tools like Reflector, which are great for looking at what members are available and. Um, you know, even what the implementation is, what it's doing under the hood. But there's, there's there's really something to be said for just trying things out and seeing what happens.
3: Yeah, it's hard hard to substitute that ability, and also just allow that form of thinking. Uh, and and then you get into the whole, how do I cap- now that I've figured this out, how do I capture it so that I can repeat it easily?
2: But I'll copy paste from the console into your program.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and it, I mean, I've got. T SQL chops as well, and I'm telling you, that's how you uh, building a really complex query. That's how it works. You start off with some core elements and start looking at the data that you're getting, and nailing down some where clauses, and then maybe you introduce an additional table to change the criteria. Like that's it's exactly the same process.
2: Right. Yep. Yeah. Yep.
1: Yeah. So Iron Python is obviously the .NET implementation of Python, but you can also program in Python without .NET on a Windows platform what uh what's that like, and is that your basic uh you know write it in notepad and compile it at the command line experience, or is there any kind of tools for
2: that There are very few Python programmers using um using notepad i have to say, although there are well. I always think that notepad is the world's best web page designer unless
1: you're Don box and then it's emacs
2: emacs emacs and vim are very popular um editors for, for python in, in fact at the office is a, a, a resolver i use i use this ed- IDE called wing it's a commercial one by a bunch of guys called wingware and it's designed for python so it's got um got very good intellisense and um, call tips and go to definitions and so on and i keep trying to get the other guys to use it but they're they're stuck with these editors vim and emacs which is just... okay. i find them very painful to use but, uh...
1: so what do people use then with regular python. a lot
2: a lot of people a lot of people do use those um because they find these lightweight things they start up very fast they don't um push any sort of concept of what the project structure should look like and they're very easy to plug other tools into so I mean, one of the things you don't get in python is you can make spelling mistakes and typos and you haven't got a compiler there to warn you so we use a tool um, called and there's another one called pyflakes and uh you set that up so you press a button on your IDE, or you have it do it every time you save, and it'll just warn you about any typos you've made, or any undefined names or unused variable names, and that kind of thing. So there are also there are refactoring tools available as well, which you sort of plug into these these editors and these IDEs. And and Python Python came out it came out of the Linux and the Unix world, but it's it's used quite a lot on um, on Windows these days. It gets used in some very surprising places. For for example, Sony Imageworks, their whole um, Image processing pipeline, now they actually do, they don't what they do do their number crunching in Python itself, but the whole pipeline for creating these, these CGI things, that's all done in, in Python. Seagate do their hard drive testing in Python. I think Pixar um, do a lot in Python as well. So there, uh, there are a lot of places using Python. For some reason, Python has become the, the, the standard scripting language for the geographical information systems guys, and, and some of those applications, like ArcGIS I think, is, is built in. In C sharp, so that they're actually embedding iron Python now and and they're a very good set of libraries for, for working with windows and um, there's a tool called Pyexe, which you don't in standard Python you don't really have a concept of compilation, but you you have tools for bundling your applications up as executables and and then you use your ordinary tools for building installers and so on.
3: This is an interesting thought this because you know I think it's generally a culture in, in programming world that there is one right language that we we program in the language of preference and and you seem to be describing to me a, an environment where we do we build libraries in certain languages that are good at building those libraries like we might be building that image rendering library in C++ because it's all about the speed but actually yep, yep. executing those libraries in C++, sucks! So if yeah. I can have Iron Python or, or, you know, these kind of interactive languages to do the execution, I'm in a much happier place.
2: And, and there are whole families of tools that will help you with that. There's Swig and there's Boost, and you can use those to take a, a C and a C++ library and build a wrapper layer, so you can call it from C-sharp, but so you can call it from Python. And I see what like this multi-language environment, the, the polyglot programming which is kind of all the rage at the moment. But the dot net framework is a great environment for doing that. I've just been exploring F sharp a little bit recently and starting to learn that. And that's a that's an interesting language. It's 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 a functional programming language, so it's different from Python, it's different from C sharp. But it looks like it's going to bend my head in interesting ways anyway. <laughs> but I, I... I can't really imagine writing a whole application in F-sharp, but for writing libraries and things like parsers or numerical processing stuff, it looks like it would be very good for that kind of thing. Absolutely. And, and then you can just you can just bring that into your, to your Iron Python application, to your C-sharp application, and you can mix these languages very easily.
3: Well, and I guess this is something that the CLR really brings to the forefront, is reducing the friction of communicating between languages.
2: Yeah, and, and it's really only something that's become, I mean... A few years ago, that there were really basically two languages for programming the CLR, and it was always called the Common Language Runtime. There was always this vision that you'd be able to to have these languages interoperating very easily, but it it never really came came into fruition, and and until a few years ago, and now we're really seeing it happen, and we're, we're seeing it happen in production as well. We've right. seeing people starting to use it.
3: Well, we had dot yeah. .net, but nobody seemed to care. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why that is.
1: <laughs> well, we did. I remember. We were excited I, about I it. I do too. And you know, there was a list of languages that was at least 20 long. And I remember Haskell was on it. I remember. Right. What else?
2: There's was- there some fun languages. There's a functional language called Nemolay, which is. Was uh, funded by Microsoft as an experimental language, and that's another functional language. And, and I think actually the, the tail recursion bytecode, which is used by F Sharp, I think was originally provided for Nimble, but they never really saw much popular use until, until the arrival of IronPython, Python, Iron Ruby, and F Sharp. I, I don't think any of them really got a sort of major mind share until till recently. Hmm.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I I do remember that, um, and I think the reason that. You know that that list was brought out was just because, you know, languages were sort of like, uh, you know, the the language was the the, the point of sale for yeah, Java yeah. or for a platform. It was Microsoft's sort of way of saying, you know, we have the benefit of Java with, uh, you, you know, the 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 richness of Java's virtual machine with the benefit of having to choose whatever language you want. And I remember somebody at Microsoft saying, when
3: somebody asks you, what language do you program in? The answer is all of them. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so my question is, these languages have been around a long time. I'm just wondering how much the CLR has played a role in the resurgence of the language polygot. I remember a couple of years ago in planning shows when we ran into Microsoft Research where, where F-sharp, was first coming on the CLR and I realized there was a ton of projects inside of Microsoft research where they used to be building these languages in totally self-contained environments where you really couldn't get at them in a useful way. And now they were doing them in the CLR because it was easier for them. And then it was suddenly feasible for us as, as mere mortal programmers to consume them.
2: Right. Right. Yeah.
3: I don't know where I'm going with that. I'm sure it's something insightful. (laughs) Yes, we agree. (laughs)
2: <laughs> I mean, I, I think with, with with Iron Python and Iron Ruby particularly, um, and even to a certain extent with, with, with F-sharp, um, what you've got is you've got a community of programmers who already like these languages, who are already fans of these languages. Uh, and these are growing languages as well. Functional languages are gaining in popularity. Dynamic languages are gaining in popularity. And I think that, to a certain extent, Microsoft had to, to go in this direction. It had to kind of uh, adapt with the changing landscape or, 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 or fade away. If they hadn't, they they saw that um, programmers were already kind of m- migrating away to a, to a certain extent from their their platform towards the, the dynamic languages. So they had to be able to say, "Look, you know, you, you can do that on the .NET framework as well," and it, and it happens to fit very well with the the infrastructure.
3: Yeah, I I, I feel like we're we're at this well, and Ted Neward's been saying this for a while. this sort of renaissance of language, and I just wonder, you know, why did it work this time that we have this sort of synthesis of things.
2: Yeah, and I think I think part of what what you were saying earlier about the power of the framework is uh, has come to that. I mean, I know for example, there's one um, one of the core implementers of the the JRuby runtime on on the, so the Ruby implementation for, for Java has started experimenting. He's released his own language called Ioki, I think, if that's the right way to pronounce it. So I think as a, as a time to be a language developer and um, the 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 virtual machines for both Java and .NET have really matured, and it, it, it's to experiment with languages. It, it's easier than it's ever been before.
1: Can I uh, can I talk about your book for just a minute, Iron Python in Action?
2: Ooh, okay.
1: <laughs> and in particular, um, I'd like to talk about all the different ways, uh, different types of applications that you cover that you can write in Iron Python. You know, we tend to think of languages as these pure things, but of course, you know, it's what you build with them that's really right. that really yep. shines. Yep. So the list is Windows Forms applications, WPF applications, ASP.NET, Silverlight, databases and web services, structured application programming, working with XML and XAML, and then you have uh, chapters on Advanced Python and Metaprogramming, PowerShell and WMI, uh, embedding and extending Iron Python with C Sharp or VB .Net, testing and shell scripting. That's pretty much it. I mean, geez, what 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 can't you do with well, Iron Python? Well,
2: Python is a general purpose language. The PowerShell stuff was fun actually because they're both separate languages. But um, the, the chapter on system administration, it's got sections on embedding PowerShell in Iron Python and and, and embedding um, Iron Python in PowerShell. So you can do it either way around. You can take, take advantage of the, the PowerShell infrastructure and the, the stuff that they've built, and you can use it from, Iron, from Iron Python. And you can also do the opposite, that there's a few things that Iron Python is very good at that kind of get around a couple of limitations in PowerShell. So you can just take the, 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 the IronPython engine and call it from PowerShell. And that's good fun to do. I don't know how many people will, will use that in practice, but it's, it's great fun to do. But, but really, my, my aim with the book, and I've, I've got a co-author, one of my colleagues, um, Christian Mulehead, he wrote the ASP.NET and the, the databases and web services chapters. But but mine was was to write a book that was useful either by Python programmers who hadn't used the .NET framework or by .NET programmers who who hadn't used Python before. So so it starts off with with a couple of introductions to to both technologies, and then goes through building a a, a small structured application that um, takes you deeper into Python and deeper into the .NET framework. And then after that, the, the chapters that follow on explore. These technologies, sort of one by one, WPF Silverlight is great fun. I really enjoy Silverlight.
1: Yeah, it's just seemed, it's just testament to the diversity of what you can do. Because obviously, we're talking about CLR apps here. You know that that covers the whole gamut. Yeah. But I just never thought about WPF, and, and that's what you know WPF and, and and Iron Python before in the same thought. But that that's why I was very impressed when I saw that FM synth thing you know oh yeah we can access direct sound because this is just a clr you just you just plug in your yep. assemblies just like anything else
2: pull it so, in and away you go yeah i i think for the book one of the one of the things that's for certainly for a lot of .NET programmers is going to be a big draw is the the chapter on embedding iron python because as i mentioned earlier i think that this um taking python as a ready-made scripting language um mm. and uh allowing you you to write um to allow your users to script your application or even doing what i mean intellipad from oslo is it is a great example intellipad is the sort of editor it's a lightweight editor for the for the oslo framework right. and what they've done is mo- most of it's in c sharp but all that it's got this extensible architecture where you can write new commands in python and all, most of the commands that they've got it implemented already are, they're just python files that come with the application so you've got Iron Python there in the heart of the application, and then once you've got it there, you tend to find well, well some things. Well, it's just going to be a bit easier to do it in in Python. So the the the, the last chapter, chapter 15, takes you through writing an application with um and uh, allowing user plugins, allowing your users to extend the application from Iron Python. And I, I really enjoyed writing that, and I think that's what do. Uh, all right. Questions.
3: I just had a horrifying thought. A whole thought. I had a horrifying thought, and the horrifying thought horrifying is: thought. Oh. is Python the new VBA?
2: <laughs> oh, Richard, don't do that, man!
1: Oh, well, well,
2: this is this is one of the things we ran. Uh, we ran this uh, ad- advertising campaign for Resolver Resolver One, um, which was: Does anybody love VBA? <laughs>
1: <laughs> See now, you know what you're doing, Richard. We're going to get inundated with emails. <laughs> from very, you know, dignified VBA programmers who think we're joking on them, We think we're hating on them. And, man, that's just not true.
2: One of the things... I mean, I've, I've not done any VBA. I'm very thankful to be able to say. Um, I've done some VB Oh, net, the dude not, not in this
1: room is so nasty.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but, but Python is, is, a, is a very well-structured language. It really lends itself to creating structured applications to to creating structured solutions to problems. So, yeah, you can you can do some incredible spaghetti things in Python if you want to. I mean, name a language where you can't write sort of terrible, terrible code. Yeah. But uh, it, it, it's a good language for writing clean, readable, maintainable code. And that's got to be the goal of programming, right?
1: Yeah. So this, uh, is this book out yet, as of this recording, which is uh, March 9th? March 9th.
2: Well, as we speak, it's winging its way to the, the printers. So in the next couple of days, next two or three days, the final ebook is going to be available. So definitely by the time um, you're listening to this, the, the e-book will be available. And then about four weeks from from today, the, the book is going to be available. It's going to be available first from the Manning website. So you can order it, you can order it from Amazon already, or you can go to the Manning website, www.manning.com slash Ford, and that's Ford with two O's, or there's com, and you, you, you can order the book. And we've actually got um, a discount code for the .NET Rocks listeners. Yay. If, if, you order, <laughs> if you order it from Manning and you use the discount code .NET Rocks, 40, and that's .NET with D-O-T-N-E-T, so .NET Rocks 40, you put that into the the Manning website when you order and you get 40% discount on Python in action or any of their range of .NET books.
1: Excellent. Well, there you go. See, you you get a little reward for listening to our crappy show.
2: (laughs) (laughs) We've we've also got the, the, the Manning have agreed to give away three copies, if you don't mind me. Putting this out there, I, I don't know how, how we're going to do that. I, I, I thought of this question, and maybe the first th- three folks to un- email in the answer is that a, is I a good way of doing it. I it, actually think
1: we we do it simpler than that. We don't require any brain power. It's just the first three emails we get that say "I want a copy." will will okay. uh, okay. so if you're listening right now, go to your email and email dotnetrocks at franklin's and say "I want a copy of uh, Iron Python in Action." And if you're the one of the first three, we'll uh, we'll send it to you. Right. Well, uh, we're going to wrap it up a little bit uh, early today. Uh, it'll give you uh, all you developers a chance to go download the code at codeplex.com/ironpython. Download the samples and uh, get started having some fun because this looks like a whole lot of fun.
2: And, and something else that's fun, and um, I really recommend that your listeners recommend that you go out and try Resolver Resolver One. It's, it's great fun to play with. We've got some. Great examples for you to, to try, and match ResolverSystems.com. You can download a free trial version there.
1: Excellent, Michael Ford. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rich
2: and Carl. Thank you very much.
1: Okay, we'll see you next time. DotNet Rocks. Time. .net Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions